Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is John Thorne. John Thorne, terrific author, MLB's resident historian, and one of the greatest conversationalists I've ever met in my life. Uh, wow, did we have a fun chat about baseball, but both before and after the podcast, we just kept talking. And uh, such a renaissance man, such a cool guy, so knowledgeable and so funny and interesting and great i wow uh big big shout out to um my wife and terrific podcast producer uh amy for uh suggesting john i don't know why i'd never potted with him before but uh thanks amy for pushing me toward doing this she and my brother-in-law david uh sat in on this podcast and the four of us just had such a fun time he's so cool thorn man i love him the Hidden Game of Baseball. If you've never read The Hidden Game of Baseball, wow, it's so good. It was written in the 70s, but there's so much stuff that's even you know, arguably revolutionary now and just really speaks to understanding the game in a deeper way. And uh, even now it's relevant. I highly recommend it. You should pick it up. Honestly, pick up anything Thorne has written, uh, whatever. Follow him on Twitter. Read him wherever you can. He is fantastic, and this was a really great chat. And if you ever wanted to know about Rube Waddell, oh boy, this is the podcast for you. So enjoy it. You can also enjoy the first of this week's sponsors, and that is SeatGeek. Listen, whether you're headed to a baseball game or concert this summer, or you're waiting for football season, I guess some people like football, SeatGeek has you covered. It's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Buy or sell your tickets to all events. They're great. I have seen baseball games using SeatGeek. And I have seen concerts using SeatGeek and many other fun venues and affairs. Uh, they are fantastic. Listen, color-coded map makes it easy to understand what's the best uh, value in the ballpark. You can figure it all out just by going to that map. Maybe it's behind home plate for this game or third baseline or the bleachers or whatever. SeatGeek has you covered. Really analytical, really cool. And uh, just the best place to get tickets to anything you could possibly imagine. And you know what? Let us discuss this also. Download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah today. And you'll get 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Yes, that's right. You can download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Jonah. That's J-O-N-A-H today. And you will get $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. It is just that easy. I cannot recommend them enough. They are fantastic. They've been sponsoring the Jonah Pickery podcast since the Mesozoic era. They're terrific. Hey, SeatGeek. Life's an event. We have the tickets. Ooh, I like that. That's a good slogan. Thanks to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Some programming notes. Uh, well, I just returned from Cooperstown, which was a really fun time. Uh, very, very enjoyable. We, uh, gosh, let's see. So the induction ceremony was really a lot of fun. Shout out to the Katz family for being great hosts and uh, everybody else in Cooperstown who's really great. Also, Tom Schieber, what a cool... Uh, behind the scenes tour of the hall, Amy and I got, uh, got to see some amazing photos I'd never seen before and artifacts and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, Tom was, uh, the best tour guide possible. So that was amazing. And it was just a really, really cool weekend. Um, speaking of, uh, great weekends and uh, great recent transactions. That's a horrible segue, but whatever. Uh, you could check out all my thoughts on the MLB trade deadline. Uh, via CBS Sports HQ. Just go to cbssports.com and at the bottom of the page you'll find HQ. 
And you can do that over there. So uh, get on that. You can also check out the CBS Sports HQ newsletter. That's worthwhile as well. So get into all that good stuff and uh, follow me there. Also, sportsnet.ca. I'll be writing uh, a little bit more about the trade deadline there and uh, doing regular TV for them as well. So get into all of that good stuff. And in the meantime, I will search out the other sponsor this week. And that is Quip. Hey, you know what? Quip is really cool. I'm a big fan. They make the best electric toothbrush on the market. Yes, that's right. The truth is most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, not for long enough, and we forget to brush our teeth on time. That's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. What makes Quip so different, you might ask? Well, I might answer, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. It's a built-in timer, helps you clean for the dentist recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist's recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. Really, really great. Very excellent product. It's a great way to brush your teeth, which is something we all do. Probably don't do enough. Probably don't do it well enough. And how about this? Quip starts at just 25 bucks. And if you go to getquip.com slash Jonah right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Jonah. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Jonah. Quip. Highly recommended, and thank you to Quip for sponsoring the podcast. And you will very much enjoy this pod, this week's podcast. It is with John Thorne. Here you go. So, John Thorne, we are recording in Cooperstown, New York, in the backyard of uh, former mayor and uh, baseball aficionado Jeff Katz, and it's lovely to be here with you. My pleasure. So, I think the way into this, I will share my tale of how I got into not just baseball, but baseball history, and then I want to hear it from you, because oftentimes with baseball can be, I grew up in Detroit, and therefore I was a Tigers fan, or whatever it is, and that was certainly the case for me. I grew up a Montreal Expos fan, but... With baseball history specifically, I remember the book that really got me into the, the nuts and bolts of baseball history. And I don't know how old I was, like five, really young. And it was a book about old baseball pitchers, pre-war pitchers, Christy Mathewson, Walter Johnson. And I was so fascinated by Three Finger Brown. First of all, how could there be a pitcher named Mordecai? I could not, this was this boggled the mind as a Jewish kid from and the suburbs. And he wasn't Jewish. And he wasn't Jewish. And he did not have his full hand, all of that. So I just found that fascinating. And in addition to the fact that I enjoyed watching Tim Raines and Andre Dawson and all that, I just thought, wow, 1910 must have been such a time. So what was your, either way into the sport, way into the history, or both? Well, I, I certainly was a baseball fan mm-hmm. from the time I was two and a half, three, because I came to this country 
uh, from a displaced persons camp. My parents were Holocaust survivors, and I was a stateless person. And my parents went to work immediately, and, you know, being out on the street with the kids and in nursery school speaking German, I was very much the oddball. And somehow I caught on to the fact that this formerly stateless person could become part of the state called the Brooklyn Dodgers, Mm -hmm. who had just welcomed an African-American in the year of my birth. And uh, I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan from the get-go and was a baseball fan thereafter, but really a an art and lit guy. So I was in graduate school at Washington University in St. Louis when I heard the siren call. And um, I think that what really made me tilt toward baseball history was the reading in about 1967-68 of two books which remain on my list of the top five ever. One is Larry Ritter's The Glory of Their Times, published in 66, and the other was... um, The first volume of Harold Seymour's uh, Oxford University History, Baseball, the uh, early years, which was to 1901 or Mm. to 1903, that was published in 1960, and then he came up with a second volume called The Golden Age, which took it to 1930. So these guys, and I became friendly with both of them and published both of them, which which was lovely, um, showed me that baseball was potentially serious business, that if you regarded yourself as a serious person, it was not disgraceful to care about baseball. And uh, baseball, to me, if, if you know, the, the term baseball historian has, uh, has an unpleasant kinship with real estate novelists. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> either you're a historian or you're not a historian. You may like baseball, but I do find baseball to be... Um, it cuts through history like a butter knife if you take it on the angle. Mm. If you approach a historical conundrum, if you approach a historical controversy, American history in particular, obviously, and you say, what was going on in baseball at that time? How did that affect baseball? How did baseball possibly affect that issue? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you are looking from the bottom up. Or you're seeing a side view that no one has ever really had purchase on before. So baseball has been invaluable to me as a way of having a unique approach to stuff that everybody's already written about. It's all new again. It's interesting. I mean, Jackie's the obvious one when it comes to American history. But my readings of Ruth... And also of Tunney and Dempsey, Dempsey, the, the boxing lore, and just the way that the Roaring Twenties were, and here come these huge figures, in particular Ruth. I don't know if that gets talked about enough. It's, the Jackie one, again, is the big one, but just that America was a big deal, and Babe Ruth was a big deal. And Babe Ruth, Ted Williams was a wonderful player. Willie Mays was a wonderful player. But it was like Ruth was made for the Twenties. It just seemed like that was the right guy at the right time. Ruth comes to the Yankees in 1920. Radio becomes public in 1920. Wow. Newsreels uh, hit in the 1920s, even though you had them in, in silent form in the earlier years. So I think being a media hero, being a culture hero, that's where Ruth kicks in. And Ruth and William, Ruth was the babe, and Ted was the kid. Mm-hmm. And what made them was that each had the gift of an unhappy childhood. Hmm. 
I, I think I can say without being maudlin that I did as well. And if it forces you to look inward or to look elsewhere for gratification, fulfillment, um, that crushes some and makes others. I like that a lot. So with Robinson, I mean, it's born a year of his birth, of him starting off in the game and to end up being a fan of Ebbets Field. I mean, are we overstating it to say that he really affected racial change in America, that, that it was like that? I, it's it's hard for me to appreciate that now. Obviously, we're so far involved, but it, I'm trying to think of an example. If there was a Muslim superstar baseball player now, I don't know if that would impact the country in the same way that Jackie did in the way it did in 47. So what, what truly was that like? And, and was it just commensurate with racial progress in America or causal? I think it was more causal hmm. than, than commensurate. Uh, Brown v. Board of Education is seven years later. Yeah. The military had uh, integrated uh, Truman's direction only a couple of years earlier, and Robinson had his own difficulties in Texas with that. Um, if you look at the last book that Jackie Robinson did, which was a distillation of other, other writings, he titled it, Baseball Has Done It. Mm. And if Robinson was okay with that title, I'm okay with that title. The Lawrence Ritter book, Glory of Their Times, is not my favorite baseball book. It's my actual favorite book of all time. It's brilliant because it's completely, there's no distillation. He invented the genre. There was no interviewing ballplayers and getting their opinion until Ball players held oral history as a genre. Is that right? Yeah. Studs Terkel read Ritter. Really? Yeah. Wow. So for people who don't know Gloria Other Times, which is the best book. There's one book prior to Ritter, and yes. that's Ronald Blythe's Aikenfeld. Didn't read that. Which is which had minimal success on this side of the Atlantic, but but is well well regarded in Britain. And I read it when I was in Vista, my one year off between junior and senior years in college. Okay. I was I set myself a program that I was going to read one book a week for fifty two weeks and I did it. That was one of them. My wife Amy is nodding and, and loves this idea very much. And, and uh, my new brother-in-law Dave has joined as well. We're all sitting around the table. Um, so Ritter, I mean, the premise of this is basically that he goes off and he talks to the old ball players, and by this point, they're all long retired. And we all know this, as you know, even if you're a minor fan of history, that of course they all had second jobs and so forth. But hearing the descriptions of how tough it was. Number one, to make ends meet, and number two, what you talked about, that baseball was serious business, and in many cases, that their parents completely disapproved and said, you may as well be a minstrel. Like, what are you doing? You're wasting your life. Go do this. Go do that. That it was well, it was a ruffian kind of thing. The public at large um, grouped ballplayers, actresses, prostitutes, wow. and uh, con men. Wow. And, but these guys had a commitment to the craft, and they were into it. So, I mean, how did they get over that barrier. I guess it was just love of the game. It had to be. I think it's also love of mastery. Oh. You, you find the thing you're good at. We all do. Yeah. And you hold on to it until it releases you. Did you have... So I, I talked about Three Finger Brown and how I was completely fascinated by him. Did you have a player who was an oddball in some way, who, who represented something that you really glommed onto as a fan, was, is there one guy who sticks out? I, we're going to get to Total Baseball in a second. I opened it up to the page. I could have planned this page, but was there one that really got you? I think of the early players. Mm -hmm. And my favorite players 
in my dotage mm-hmm. are the ones I never got to see because they died before I was born. So King Kelly, mm-hmm. Jim Creighton, Doc Adams, people to whom I've devoted a great deal of research. Mm-hmm. In some cases, uh, debunking legends. In some cases, making new ones. And um, there is this uh, golem effect whereby when you're working with dead players whom you never saw and and no living person has ever seen, Mm -hmm. you are inventing Doc Adams. You are inventing King Kelly. They are your critters. And you can form a very personal relationship that... um, it sounds like the stuff of uh, Twilight Zone. You know, Kelly, Kelly and I are having dinner tomorrow. You want to come <laughs> over? How do you do It's tricky, though, because you have to be... The, the brand of writing that I was always taught was don't put thoughts in other people's heads, essentially. That unless you know, you can't say, well, so-and-so was at the plate. It was a 3-2 count, and he was his knees were shaking. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't ask him, and there's no documentation of that. So when you're writing as a historian, you want to paint as rich a picture as possible, which can involve emotion. But, you know, reading, you're reading The Hidden Game, reading Total Baseball. I also know that you're a stickler for facts. How do you Knees blend? do not shake in Total Baseball. There you go. And I don't. they certainly don't in The Hidden Game, my goodness. So how do you do this? How do you paint a rich picture but also be true to what you know to be true rather than speculating? The one thing that I learned too late for some of my readers mm-hmm. was... Stop trying to write fancy. If you talk fancy and you write plain, well, that's stupid <laughs> because you're better off having your writing reflect your speech. Yeah. So writing became easier for me as I got older. Hmm. And I became glib. And it's not merely that I didn't give much of a crap. Um, it's also that it felt right. In the first draft, I do very, very little revision of my stuff. It comes out the way I talk, and I do talk mildly fancy. Uh, the, the first draft thing rings totally true. So I want to go. I did open the front page of Total Baseball, and for people who don't know, Total Baseball was the internet before there was the internet. <laughs> That's that. This is what this is. This is how how many pages is this? Twenty seven hundred plus. I don't even need to look. Twenty seven hundred pages, and uh, what was your and quip? every page a gem. But for real, it actually is. And I opened it up, and, and I know Amy will love this. I opened it up, and there's a bunch of great players on this page, and one of them is Rube Marquard. And Rube Marquard was named after, as I understand it from Total Baseball, uh, Rube Waddell. Every, every eccentric left-hander after Rube Waddell was named Rube. But Rube Marquard was a cosmopolitan ladies' man and, and highly star. And Actually, Rube, Rube Waddell did vaudeville, too. But Rube Waddell... Was I guess you could say a rube in the tr- in the classical sense? It's very interesting to have he, two guys he, with he the was, same. He was, he was probably moronic. He was probably IQ seventy or so, mm. and um, that's not true of Marquardt, who I believe grew up in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. He was not not born a cosmopolite, but um, he married uh, Blossom Seely, a vaudeville star, best name, and um, they had an act after the nineteen twelve season, which was called Nineteen in a Row, celebrating. The fact that Mark Ward had won his first 19 decisions that year. So we get to touch on Rube Waddell again, just because he's so fascinating. So apparently enchanted by flashy objects, is that the premise of his... Lack of, lack of an attention span. Uh, th- this is a guy who could be found under the stands, yeah. playing marbles with kids when he was supposed to be out on the mound, when he was the starting pitcher. 
He uh, would chase fire engines because he loved the sound. <laughs> um, he wrestled alligators. What? Uh, yeah, all, all of these things, which ought not to be true, in fact, are, are documented. And uh, it's impossible to make up a story about Waddell that exceeds in implausibility what he achieved in real life. This is fascinating. I love this. Um, and, of course, he died on April Fool's Day. As, as natural. It would seem to be natural. I, there's this premise in baseball. I don't know if people still talk about it, but that it's better to be basically a brainless ball player. That if you go up to the plate and you start thinking about it and you're cerebral, you're going to fail. And this has been a bias that has existed for a long I mean, Lou Gehrig probably got a little bit of it as, as the Columbia guy and all this. And there were quite a few smart baseball players who were really good. But do you buy into this? Is, could it be that somebody like Waddell was was perfectly suited for this game? Uh, because it's a, re, it's a read and react game in many ways. I think that there are naturals in many fields. Uh, one might argue that Trump is a natural for politics. <laughs> Dave just made a face. <laughs> May I interject? <laughs> but uh, I, I, I say that not to endorse or yeah. denigrate him, yeah. but this is a man who was not a politician who found a way to become president, to be elected president. Right. And did he do it with a void of nescience, with, with, with an absence of any gifts but natural ones? Uh, it's arguable. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, and you know, Maddox was supposed to be cerebral. It's funny because the smart ones stand out. I feel like there aren't that many truly, whenever there is one, the media, first of all, has this big bias. Like when Mucina comes along and he's the Stanford kid, they're like, oh, Mike Mucina. And there's this reverence that, oh, well, you're one of us, you know, that the writers have a certain snobbishness to them. And they say, okay, well, you're not some guy from a cornfield. You can hang with us a little bit, which is kind of unfortunate, it feels like. It testifies to the insecurity of sports writers yes, more yes. than anything else. Um, the sports writers are the guys who, by and large, didn't go on to get their doctorates in English literature. Nor they, become ballplayers. <laughs> or become ballplayers. Yeah. So uh, they are in this uh, third world, this nether world, where, where they can neither play baseball nor write about it as giftedly as George Bernard Shaw might have. I wonder what George Bernard Shaw would have done with baseball. That could have been an interesting one. I like that a lot. Well, George Bernard Shaw did make one comment about baseball that I'm aware of. Um, well, actually, two. One was that uh, baseball was superior to cricket in that it was sooner over. <laughs> and the other, I believe, was that um, the tenets of baseball, and I'm misquoting him terribly, uh, should be carried over to other spheres of life where when you disagree with someone, you are permitted to impugn his mother's honor. <laughs> That's very gracefully said. Yes. And challenge the circumstance of your birth. <laughs> I understand both of those comments very well. Um, so what leads to the hidden game? Because for me, that was so formative. I read my first James Abstract when I was eight, and I think I read Hidden Game when I was eight and a half. I was like that, and maybe I was destined to be some nerd. Um, did you, were you real close with Pete for a while and you guys just kicked around an idea? Was it that you guys met up by virtue of the book? How did it we come We met up to be? by virtue of the book. Okay. I, I had the idea for the book. Yeah. And, um, basically it seemed to me that Bill and other people who were 
turning numbers to good advantage mm -hmm. and giving us a better understanding of how the game was played and how perhaps it might be better played, we're ignoring these uh, elephants in the room. And that's why do we measure anything at all? Mm -hmm. uh, what is left unmeasured after we're after we've done the best of our measurement? And um, what are what is the impulse? Why are we doing this? Why do we think that if we quantify something, we have a superior understanding of it? So I was I was perhaps still infected with grad schoolism. You know, these are very academic questions, and we we dealt with not only the history of how people had measured things and how opinions had changed, but also introduced Pete's linear weight system, which is basically uh, the All same as war. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> with a different baseline. Mm -hmm. A baseline of zero for an average player instead of uh, a replacement player, which is a murky concept to me. Yeah. Um, so I think it was a pioneering work, and, when, and I was offered, uh, along with Pete, the opportunity to reprint it at several points in the 1990s and the aughts. And the idea was always, you can just update it. And I said, you can't update it. It is, it is a monument of time and place. And the sabermetric community, the analytical community, has been updating it daily ever since. And uh, if you're going to reissue it, the only way I would agree to reissue it is verbatim with a new introduction. And University of Chicago Press finally, I think three years ago, agreed to the terms. Yeah, it makes sense just because the analytics have come so far since the 70s. You can't update that book. You know, it, it's like saying, uh, uh, Mr. Newton, Principia Mathematica is really terrific, but... <laughs> <laughs> so what, you know, you mentioned the elemental question of why do we try to measure, why do we try to quantify? It's notable that we don't try to do that with actors. You know, we don't, is Tom Cruise, is it, is it, I don't know, Cary Grant, who's, who's the bet? We can't know this thing because it's subjective and baseball players we can measure them and maybe that is the entire that's the crux of it that we have a record of it well quantification is productive that that's theoretically inarguable yeah um and those things that are not capable of reduction to numbers might be argued to be philosophically superior i was a philosophy it's, it's, major it's by ineffable. the way and a quant so it's it's, i'm all over the place um Did you, did the impact of that book kind of unfold over the years? Did you start running across people that said, oh, I read this thing and now I totally understand Ron Santo better and you've changed my life? Have you had those kinds of stories? I have. Yeah. And I've had those conversations with some of the very ball players. Interesting. Of the era? Yeah. So, look, when, when I wrote The Relief Picture in 1979, this is before I knew Pete, mm -hmm. um, I thought... Why are there no relief pitchers in the Baseball Hall of Fame? This is clearly a position in the modern game that is occupied uh, better by some than by others, but no club goes without relief pitchers. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have 98% uh, complete games as we did in Hoss Radburn's day. So something <laughs> here has changed, but it is not reflected in the composition of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And clearly, that line of reasoning comes to the designated hitter. And for me, it is precisely the same. How can you have a position since 1973, which for many years was occupied by a single individual, for some years thereafter was a platoon, 
and now is used as a parking lot for players who need a rest. But does Edgar belong? Does Big Poppy belong? Sure. Yeah. Sure. It, their, their induction into the Hall of Fame will be a lagging indicator of the importance of the concept, just as Hoyt Wilhelm's induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame was a lagging indicator. We're going to wait for the car horn for a second. I'll just keep recording whatever. Actually, I guess I should stop recording because that'll make it easier for my editor. Recording this. Go. <laughs> Go. When Denton True Young was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1937, they put his name on a wooden plaque with gilt lettering for all those who had been inducted from 36 through 38, I guess it was. And he was listed as Denton Tecumseh Young. Really? Yes, because everyone thought that was his middle name. Somebody got it wrong in the press 30 years before. Wow. And he never bothered to correct him. Elvis Aaron. Yes. Right? Yes. They never corrected that. I, and another baby named Elvis? Elvis or Aaron? <laughs> so let's circle back. I want to touch on the position thing for a second, just because the relief pitcher DH thing, I, you know, I definitely believe in the concept of, of war or something similar or linear weights and so forth. And the argument is that relief pitchers can't affect enough change that even if you adjust for the leverage of the game, they just haven't logged enough innings and maybe Mariano, but virtually no, maybe Eckersley, but he was a hybrid, maybe Smoltz, but he was a hybrid. To the extent that relief pitching is an elective strategy, just right. as stealing a base is an elective strategy, you might have to divide the award between the manager and the player. I think that's fair, and I think this brings up the question. I'm not trying to be flip about it, but should Manny Moda be in the Hall of Fame? Should Jay Johnstone be in the Hall of Fame? Should the greatest pinch hitters of all time, should the greatest setup men of all time be in the Hall of Fame? Should Andrew Miller be a contender for the Hall of Fame if he does this for 10 more years? I think these are valid questions. If you have a job in baseball and you are the best at that job, even if the job is relatively minor, how far do we take this line of reasoning? My quick answer to you is, is Andrew Miller, yes. Manny Moda, no. Okay. Because if you are a substitute for someone, mm -hmm. that means... It's not that you have a special gift for substitution. It means you're not good enough to make the starting eight. That's fair. But Andrew Miller wasn't. My contention is that relief pitchers are busted starters, and Mariano was a mediocre starter, and so was Eric Gagne, and Eckersley was a good starter, but not a great one, and then the greatest closer, and they're not good enough to make the rotation. I've always said that. I talked to Glenn Perkins, recent closer of the Minnesota Twins, and he said, oh, flat out. He knew he wasn't good enough, and he became a, an all-star closer because that was an easier job. So maybe you can make that argument for relief pitchers, too. Well, I think uh, there is a talent to recognizing that your ability is that of a specialist rather than that of a generalist. Yeah. And if you're compelled to master four pitches over six innings and you've got an ERA of 5.2, you might look at which of those four pitches is your best one. <laughs> <laughs> you throw more of that and less of the others. So so th th there's an entropic quality to baseball that I love. It's a closed system. Mm -hmm. And um, things will drift into certain directions and then drift back. So uh, the shift, there are people who are arguing that we should have mandated two men on each side of the infield. Uh, yep. I'm against that because I believe, A, I believe that evolution is real. Mm -hmm. And uh, B, I believe that Lucas Duda should learn how to bunt down the third baseline for a double. He should. Mm -hmm. The fact that he may not be able to or he can't or he won't uh, does not mean that I need to adjust the rules to accommodate his ineptitude. And I have nothing particular against Mr. Duda because there are many, uh, there are many other... Uh, grooved swings that Dan Daniel Murphy 
you wouldn't want to alter that swing. Right. But situationally, why not? Well, and it runs counter to this whole air ball, fly ball revolution that everybody figured out that the ball's juiced, and if you try to uppercut, which is so simple in some ways, and Phil Plantier used to do it, and I'm sure a bunch of guys from the 1910s used to Felix do it. Felix all these guys, but right. somehow it made a player out Mantia of Justin Smoke and all these guys. could not play for the 1962 Mets, yep. or the 63 Mets. Goes to Boston, hits 28 homers. Yeah, there are, uh, <laughs> all success is is a, uh, a marriage of might and circumstance. And by the way, with the bunting thing, I had Carlos Pena on the podcast recently, who's a lovely man and was mm-hmm. a great ball player. And... Uh, We had a nice time, but his favorite part was when I pointed out to him, and I don't remember if it was his final career number, but it was close. It was like toward the end that he was 15 for 25 attempting to bunt. And obviously that's skewed by foul balls and has to be a ball in play and so forth. But 600 batting average for a guy who was probably 6'3", 230 and clearly a power pull hitter Mm -hmm. is pretty good. And maybe Lucas Duda could put up a 525 or whatever. Maybe he could. And more importantly is that maybe he could get – that shortstop to play one or two steps closer to third base. Yes. And now he's driving balls up the middle that formerly wouldn't go. So that's that's the beauty of a closed system. Uh, I don't know if you recall a handheld game with lots of pins and rubber bands. You're talking about APBA? No, no, no. Not a baseball game, but oh. rather a, a, a game you, you you would play where you would just alter the, the tracks of the rubber bands. I mean, I vaguely remember this. And Amy's to me, this seems to be much of life that you can understand it as a closed system, that those things that are outliers that uh, we can't account for and ought not to waste a lot of time accounting for, uh, if you can't count it, it doesn't count. (laughs) That's good. Um, I also want to ask you about where we're at as an era. Yes, there's a a lot of power, but strikeouts just continue to rise, and we're really at a pitcher's era. It's very worrisome. It is. And, of course, I think to the 60s, and, of course, I think to 68, and Koufax and Gibson, and the solution was just we're going to lower the mound, and we're not going to have any more 1.12 ERAs. Is is it as simple as that? Is that the tonic now? Do we do that? I think we need to do something. Yeah. Um, I leave it to wiser heads and higher salaries uh, to determine the future course of baseball. But the idea that we now have rising strikeout rates and diminishing walk rates. Yes. This is unprecedented. It's not the three true outcomes thing where everybody's trying to be Jim Tomei. We have fewer balls put into play. And as one who loves the 19th century and loves the impetus behind the game developing, growing, becoming popular, what made it popular was not the battle between the pitcher and the batter, but rather the pitcher and the batter working in tandem to create plays for fielders and runners. Because watching brilliant fielding, which then meant catching a line drive on one bounce, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, daring running because stealing bases was in the in the game from the beginning. Yep. Um, I think we need to look back to where we started that somehow we have become that Wrigley Field, the L.A. Wrigley Field. Yeah. Uh, home run derby. 280 down the line? Uh, Wrigley Field yeah. in L.A.? I don't recall what that was. It was It was definitely less than 300 feet. It was clo- The Coliseum was 261, I believe, the one year that it was. 259? 259 down the line. Yeah, it's like 40, to 42-foot high screen that Wally Moon mastered. So his home runs, of course, were known as moon shots. Which is amazing. By the way, when you refer to the... Uh, 
going back to the 19th century, I can't help but thinking, oh, you want that Billy Hamilton, not this Billy Hamilton. That's I, basically what we're talking about. I actually like both Billy Hamiltons. I like the Billy Hamilton who doesn't hit. Yes. Who seems to have no place in the batting order. No matter where you put him, he does not function. <laughs> but, boy, do I love to see him on the bases on those rare occasions when he's on first. And do I love to see him play center field. So let's find a way to make Billy Hamilton work. Yeah. Well, and it just... I always wonder about that, too, because we romanticize about whatever period was in our youth, and for me it was the 80s, so that's Reigns and Henderson, but it feels like people of different ages like that era, too, because it was it felt like there was an equilibrium. You had the big sluggers who could come up there, but you had a bunch of jackrabbits, and you had some strikeout artists, and then you had you know, ground ball specialists who could really succeed, too, that... And baseball, baseball is like Seventh Avenue. You know, there are hemlines going up and hemlines going down, and there are fashions, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, when Whitey Herzog uh, did so well with both Kansas City and St. Louis yeah. with Whitey Ball, George Steinbrenner got it and said that this was the way the Yankees had to play, so he got rid of his sluggers and got in a bunch of jackrabbits, and of course, wrong for Yankee Stadium. Did not work. <laughs> <laughs> but follow the leader, um, it, it's there in baseball. So um, it, when somebody cracks through this, when, when you get guys who will hit 30 home runs, but will also occasionally drive the ball the other way, mm -hmm. and not merely as a product of a defensive swing with two strikes. So we're here in Cooperstown, and I feel like some historical perspective on Hall of Famers is in order, and, and just the, the general thrust of it, and, and I find it so interesting that Jack Morris and Alan Trammell are going in, because it feels like that period... That 65 to 95 period just got neglected, and I struggled, struggled to understand why. And I think, well, maybe it's a Trammell, Trammell, Whitaker, Gritch, all these guys. They're on base, guys. They hit doubles. They don't fit the milestones. Maybe it's that they don't, their numbers pale compared to the PD era. Or maybe something else. Maybe just the voters are cranky about guys who played in 1982. What is it? What did we miss here? I think the numbers took over. Yeah. I think that, um, we started looking at milestones, and while analytics started to take over, mm -hmm. it was too late for a guy like Bobby Gritch, whose career was, you know, winding down by the time anybody recognized that he was the best player in the American League year after year after year. Um, Morris is, to me, a tremendously interesting exclusion and finally inclusion. Mm -hmm. I never had a problem with including him, even though the the analytics don't look good. Yeah. And I don't believe in pitching to the score. And um, for me, the criterion for the Hall of Fame has always been very simple. But I don't run the joint, and the sim the the, the criterion for inclusion is visible in the name of the institution. Were you famous? That's it. Was Bobby Gritz really famous? No, there there are people who are deserving. Yeah. But then there then there are people who are famous for having been famous. Yeah. And uh, Morris was there in Game Seven. Yes. Right. So that that endures, and he was the ace of a very good Tigers team for a decade, mm -hmm. and then moved to the Twins and moved on elsewhere after that. And Blue Jays won ninety two for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's right. So I think. That if you have these periodic spikes in your career that make you periodically famous, <laughs> it's good enough for me. I'm, I'm a big Hall guy. I yeah, do, right. I do not think 
that we ought to hold the very best of our players to the same standards as those of the 1920s and 30s when you had 16 teams and each of them had 25. So we were talking about the 400 back then. We're now talking about the 1,000 every year. Yes. And the guy who comes up in September and plays 11 games and is not heard from again would have been a star in the 1920s. So I think some some acknowledgement has to be paid to the fact that the game is always improving and that while we're not going to rip Roger Bresnahan's plaque from the wall right. or say, how did Rick Farrell get in? That must have meant his brother. Uh, injustice abounds in the eyes of every fan who cares about this stuff, but I- I'm, I'm for a big haul. Well, and, you know, to your point about the changing standards, the changing training methods, all that stuff, I find that debate interesting because... To me, Barry Bonds is the greatest player of all time, not mm-hmm. Babe Ruth and not Ted Williams, mm-hmm. because Barry Bonds had to face Greg Maddox and all these guys, and and Ruth faced great pitchers, but relative to the era, and they probably threw 91, and they didn't have the monster curveball, whatever. It just doesn't feel the same. But the flip side to that is those guys didn't train the way that these guys did. They didn't weigh train. They didn't. They didn't know no, knew nothing about nutrition. There's this like weird relativism where are we supposed to transport Bonds back here or supposed to transport Ruth back here? And that becomes a tough debate. It's a very tough debate because Ruth exceeded the league average by a mile to an extent that we thought was unmatchable. Yes. And then Bonds did it. Yeah. But Ruth did as a pitcher too. That's, that's the argument I'm sensitive right, to. Right, yeah. right, right. But, but, the extent to which Ruth exceeded the um, exceeded his peers with the bat and leveled the field among pitchers, um, that you thought could not be done again. Mm-hmm. And um, Ruth's excellence is not merely the measure of Ruth. It's also the measure of the guys he played against. He, yeah. he didn't play at night. He didn't play against blacks. Um, there are a lot or of Latin guys, players. Yeah, a lot, yeah. Of, a lot of guys on rosters who uh, would have lost their spots if integration had come earlier. Mm-hmm. So the, the overall level of play would have improved. It was kept down. Yeah, and it's not Ruth's fault. And would Ruth have hit the same seventy years later? No, no, he would have had fewer home runs. Or perhaps he would have had more home runs and a lower batting average. He wouldn't have been Babe Ruth anymore. Yeah. The idea of transporting Barry Bonds back to the 1910s is frightening. <laughs> because what did Walter Johnson throw, 94? Yeah. Right? And kind of really visible from that right-handed sidearm. Oh, are you kidding? That's going to break right into Bonds' wheelhouse. He's going to cry. And Walter Johnson was the best pitcher. Yes. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Lefty Grove might have given him a battle or two, I guess. But when he had his fastball, correct. After after that, he just became a junk ball. Correct. Yeah, that's... and he hung around trying to win his three hundredth game the way Early Wind did. You know, uh, go get your ears pinned back, go out there again. Get your ears pinned back, go out there again. It's very <laughs> very distressing. The fame thing is so interesting to me. I remember having a conversation with somebody who was not a sabermetrician by any means, and he said, "You know, Jose Canseco should be in the Hall of Fame." Jose Canseco was a very, very good, good baseball player. player. Very good. He has some pretty decent statistical milestones. Obviously, by war and all that, he's far short. And Jose Canseco was very famous. He dated Madonna. The book that he wrote became his famous after the fact. 
I don't know that the hall is worse for Jose Canseco, but then I think to myself, well, where is the line? It's like anything else. If you're going to do it statistically, is the line Bobby Gritch? Is the line Dewey Evans? Is the line Jim Rice? Is the line Orlando Cepeda? So what do we do with the fame thing? And fame is subjective, and subjectivity is tough. What would you do if you were doing the fame thing? Is Jose Canseco a Hall of Famer to you? No, I would say not. Okay. I would say not, because some of his fame derives from his off-field activities. Fair. And... Uh, of course, he's famous in highlights for the ball bouncing off his head and over the wall. That, so that will endure. <laughs> um, I think the guys who ought to be in, who are not in, are Doc Adams and Dick Allen. Dick Allen was the one I was thinking. And, um, you know, there's probably somebody I'm forgetting who's, you know, Mike Messina ought to be a lock. Yeah, Schilling is the other one to me. Yeah. But we're starting to cry. I mean... Trammell is in now. They got Reigns. They're going to get Edgar. It's starting now. And, We're yeah, there. and Messina's vote totals go up every yes, year. He was so there's no good. question that, that, that he's going to get in. Schilling will be balked in some measure the by his politics. Yeah. And that's really unfair because... I agree. Um, it, it's like keeping somebody out for personal conduct reasons. Well, we have lots of jerks in the Hall of Fame. Good cap, Anson. Oof. <laughs> we could go on. Yes, we could go on. Yeah, no, it's um it's an interesting one too. We um and then there are the guys who were overlooked for decades. William Hulbert, who created the model for Major League Baseball, who hmm. invented the National League, was the last to get in of those nineteenth century. He didn't get in until what, nineteen ninety three? Took a long time. How do you overlook the guy who created the model that all professional sports leagues have followed? <laughs> The National League model was followed by Euro football. It was followed by basketball. You know, it, it is the model. We no longer have cooperative teams and gate sharing. The other one that I wonder about, you, know, you talked about the Bobby Gritch is the best player in the American League. Part of that is Bobby Gritch, and part of that is, is historical con- circumstance, coincidence. Mike Messina was probably never the best pitcher in the league. Mike Messina was a contemporary of... Three of, I would argue, the five greatest pitchers of all time, which is Roger Clemens, Greg Maddox, mm-hmm. and Randy Johnson. And Kurt Schilling was a contemporary, too. Uh, that's not Mike Messina's fault. If you put Mike Messina in some other era where there weren't that many pitching stars... The number I love for Messina is that he won more than 50% of his starts. That's pretty good. And that is virtually unheard of. Really? How many guys have done that? Do you know offhand? <laughs> no, I don't know offhand, but it's less surprisingly few. Less than 20. Wow. Since, since, uh, say, 1930. Yeah, and this is in an era when relief pitching is becoming more common, so you're not going to so get as many Ws. That's right. Yeah. You're not going to get that many decisions. Cor- exactly. So to win 50% of your starts, hmm. that means not 50%, you know, it doesn't mean half of your decisions, it means half of your starts. Right. That means you're going six, seven innings and handing off to a relief pitcher in, what, 10 starts out of 35 every year? The other thing is the why do we care question, you know, and, and I was a big advocate for Reigns. And yes, it was a sabermetric argument, but fundamentally I liked Reigns when I was six and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, he's cool and I knew him a little bit. I'm like, oh, just, let's see if what happens. And so I advocated. But sometimes you'll get somebody who, you know, they're advocating for Edgar Martinez. They didn't grow up a Mariners fan. They don't have any visceral connection. 
Maybe they don't even believe that much in DH's making it, but they say, well, look at his on-base, and it's really good. And people get really into it, really into it, which is, of course, the beauty of baseball, and it's great, and that's why you're employed. That's why I'm employed. It's wonderful. But it's why, why do we care a lot? It's why we root. When we go to a, fan, when we go to a ball game yeah. for three hours or four, we are entitled to become somebody else. Mm. It, it, it is like Mardi Gras. We have masks on, <laughs> and we yell. And we get talk excitedly with people around us whom we don't know. And when the whole thing is over, you go back to your rather calm life. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you are permitted to be a reveler and to be furious and elated, uh, the range of emotions that's available to you, baseball gives you permission to be more like yourself. Hmm. More, more like the person who resides within you who is very seldom on display. We just don't have very many big wins in life. You get married, you have a child, but you're not, you know, you're systems analyst. You don't like, I kicked your ass, other systems <laughs> analyst. It's not a thing. Very good. Yeah. You know, and you can win awards, like in our profession, yeah, you can win writing awards and stuff like that. I think that we're maybe a little bit more forward-facing. But even then, like, I'm not dunking on anybody, you know what I mean? And, and, and there's something, there's something to the tribalism that's wonderful and charming. And there's also something it's that's, it's, that's exactly what I was going to say, that it's a little, and I've been to college football games. And that's when it ratchets up. I've been to Montreal Canadiens versus Boston Bruins games. And I didn't witness this, but a Cabs fan, it was in Boston, got curb stomped by Bruins fans. Why? Because he was wearing a jersey. And the fine line between, wonderful enthusiasm that's so cool and I'm actually afraid now is can be really thin it's not the best sometimes it's hard to put that one back in the bottle yep. too yep and uh, and alcohol uh, by back in the bottle I mean like like the genie but but literally I didn't mean I didn't mean it like I meant knew you meant genie but yes it yes. can be yes yeah um Sports uh, brings out the extremes in us mm -hmm. for for good and for bad and yeah. and you find that uh, you reach over a kid for a foul ball and happily put it in your pocket. Mm -hmm. uh, there is an entitlement to behave badly. Yep. At a ball game or even in front of the television. Yeah. You can. You can uh, impugn a man's honor. <laughs> Or the circumstance of his birth. <laughs> and you don't know him and he doesn't know you. Correct. So what's going on here, Dr. Freud? <laughs> what's, what's going on is bottled up anger yeah. is released. And you have permission. You have a permission slip because it's just being a fan. Mm. It's a rooting. And rooting, of course, is a, <clears throat> a fabulously interesting word because it's screwing. Rooting and rutting. I guess so. It's interesting that way. I want to ask you also, I saw your Facebook post today, and it was about a African-American woman who was a Ida fan. Ida Wells, yep. Ida Wells. This is 19th century stuff. And it was... Uh, and this, of course, is where I live. Yes. This where, that, that's where I like baseball the best. So... You know, you have this gig, and you were always doing things like this, but this is now your official gig. Your job is mm -hmm. to find cool stuff in history and tell people about it, right. essentially. So this is your favorite stuff is 
things like what was life like in 1886, this is the thing that gets you charged up more than anything? It does. It, the, the idea that it's a magic carpet ride, that somehow uh, the combination of a game account and a box score and scouring um, the magazines and analyzing the illustrations will give you a better picture of what life was like than reading Richard Hofstadter. Hmm. It's funny, the Wells, it was just a paragraph. And it was talking about her, her conduct at the game. Hissing. It's such a visceral word. I love that word, hissing. And just that she was able to do the things that we just talked about, that she could vent and do these things. And, and this is an African-American woman who certainly could not give free reign to these emotions in a department store. Or anywhere, really, this was the only one. You know, that if you're a white male, yeah, you can sort of be a jerk in the department. Well, maybe not the same way you can't yell and say you're blind like you would to the umpire. But still, it was really, really striking to me. So how do you... You are visually impaired. <laughs> you are visually impaired. So what's your uh, methodology? How do you, you know, you wake up in the morning and you say, I want to find an Ida Wells story? How no. Do, how no. does it go? No, I, I have legions of smart friends. Okay. And I share stuff with them when I find it, mm -hmm. and they share it with me when they find it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the thing they're sharing will set me off on a journey, or I'll find a photo and I'll say, this is the most peculiar thing. Hmm. Um, I've, got, I've got three major stories in the works that I've been sitting on for months that I'm hoping now in August and September I can get to. Mm -hmm. And... Um, some of them take off from a picture, and then from the picture you say, well, who is this guy, and who's who's around him? And then you realize he is a Civil War vet, and here he is, he's 90 years old, since the 1930s, and he's describing his life, and it turned out that he was the star pitcher for Oberlin College in 1867. So when you, when you find a nugget, it, it pries open, you know, it's the first olive out of the jar, it's the tough one. And then everything else after that just comes rushing out, rushing at you. And there's nothing to me that's more fun than briefly being in command solely of a story that nobody else knows. Mm. And then there's great joy in sharing it. So great. It's my, it's my favorite thing is, I, having written a book about the Expos, and I've said it before, my favorite stuff wasn't Vladimir Carrera or Pedro Martinez. My favorite stuff was Expo 67, and this was what the mayor was doing in the city, and Rossi stopped. I wasn't alive. I'm, I would rather take somebody by the hand and bring them over and say, look at this thing, it's so cool, than, yeah, it was already there, that was nice. You know, I just, I'm, I don't know if that's a common thread for journalists or not, I'm not sure, but it certainly is for me. I, th I think that, that, uh, the past is not past. It, it, it is present. Mm. And it is present. And it, I follow baseball every day. I check the box scores. I check the game accounts. I'm very much aware of the pennant races, yes. who's doing what. But it is so great when something happens. You say, God, that's the first time this happened since 1892. And you know what happened in 1892 when you mm -hmm. run back to it. And mm -hmm. now you've got a little bit of a story. So have, having uh, an implausibly good memory and uh, good research techniques and built up archives over 45 years um, 
I can make connections that are not available to most fans most of the time. And that's one of the things that I think um, my audience, which is a ridiculous term because of what I've got, 20,000 Twitter followers, um, people who like what I do mm-hmm. are accustomed to my coming up with odd takes. And they're not typically statistical. They're, they're typically pictorial hmm. and, and historical. Two more, since we're talking about things that we haven't seen in a long time. How big a deal, and granted, he's heard and we'll see and whatever, but how big a deal is Shohei Otani and his skill set? Is it huge historically? Is it we don't really know yet? Is it we're not making a big big enough deal about it as is? I think the injury has given us pause. Yep. Um, but, yeah, it was a great story. It is a great story. It, it is Little League uh, come to life on a big league field. Oh, I like that. We, we have not seen, uh, you know, when, when, when you're in a Little League or Babe Ruth League, the best player on the team bats clean up, pitches, and when he's not pitching, he's playing shortstop yeah. because he can do everything. Yeah. Well, Otani can do everything. And we haven't seen a guy like this in a long time. We've seen position players who pitch yeah. for laughs, yeah, and we have sometimes had position players who become pitchers, or vice versa. Rick Ankeel, Brooks Kieschnick is like the yep, closest, yep, yep. and he was Brooks Kieschnick, and Pete Appleton, and uh, if Farrell could really hit back in the day, but he was a pitcher who happened to be a hitter, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, last one I want to ask you is, you know, we're sitting here and. You know, to me, I've now made friends in Cooperstown. There's a lot of camaraderie and so forth. But every year I meet somebody who says, I'm here for the first time. So what would you say to somebody who's never come to Cooperstown for the induction? Maybe even not the induction. Maybe just in May to come see the hall and to hang out. What What is the appeal? Why would you encourage people to come? If you're a baseball fan, mm-hmm. and I think that's a predicate. Yes. And you come to Cooperstown you find yourself walking among ghosts. The ghosts are springing off the walls, Mm. right? They come to life. And going to the plaque room, corny as it is, does rock your world. Because you say, I saw him play, and I saw him play, and my dad told me about that one, and I read about that guy. All of a sudden, the greatest figures in baseball history are in your living room. It is temporary, and it's overpowering, mm. and it's meaningful, because you experience the totality of baseball here in Cooperstown in a way that you can't anywhere else. Does Cooperstown get things wrong? Sure. Are there people with plaques who might not have plaques? Are there people who ought to have plaques who don't have plaques? Absolutely. There are things to argue about, but that's part of the fun. And I think Cooperstown, the people who run Cooperstown are smart enough to know that debate about their practices and uh, <laughs> and whom they honor and when they honor them is all to the good. John Thorne, you're a gentleman and a scholar, and this has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, John.